Hello and welcome back to another episode of Chasing Excellence. My name is Patrick Cummings. Every week here on the show, we dedicate some time to exploring how we can live a life of better health and increased fulfillment. And Ben and I thank you for joining us this week on the show. We have a fantastic interview with Stephen Kotler. Stephen's been on the show before. He's the author of a new book called Nar Country. In addition to writing multiple New York Times bestsellers, including The Art of Impossible, which is one of my favorite books, Stephen is the director of the Flow Research Collective and is an expert on human performance. We start our conversation with an overview of what flow is and why it matters, and then we get into a really cool chat about what Stephen calls and what he writes about in Nar Country, Peak Performance aging. Before we get into the conversation, if you are not yet subscribed or following the show wherever you're listening or watching, please do. That will ensure you do not miss another episode. All right, without further ado, here is our conversation with Stephen Collar. Stephen, thank you so much for coming back onto the show. You've got a new book, uh, NAR Country. Uh, Really excited to talk to you about it. I wanted to start or we wanted to start really big picture to get, make sure our listeners are on the right page. You work in your, many of your books are on the subject of flow. And we want to make sure people understand what that is, what that means. And more importantly, why it's so important, not only to your work, not only to this new book, but to uh, our lives. And so can you just kind of lay the framework of like what flow is and make sure we're all using the the same words to mean the same thing? Yeah. Let's start with uh, flow is a, it's a scientific term. And it is technically defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, it's any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. We're so focused on the task at hand, so focused on what we're doing that everything else just starts to disappear, melt away. Sense of self, self-consciousness, the voice in your head, your inner critic that gets really quiet. Time passes strangely. Uh, often, most frequently, you just get so sucked into what you're doing. A couple hours go by and you, and you look up and you think like two minutes has passed. Uh, and throughout... All aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. So that's flow. Everybody, uh, all humans can get into flow, right? It's ubiquitous in humans. It's universal. It's, we're all hardwired for it. This is how humans do peak performance. And the skills that get elevated in flow are, are considerable. There's physical skills. Strength goes up. Stamina goes up. Our sensitivity to pain decreases fast, which muscle response increases. But the bigger lift is cognitively. And you see everything from motivation, productivity, creativity, learning rates, learning progressions, uh, wisdom, empathy, collaboration, cooperation, a whole mess of, of cognitive skills gets significantly elevated above baseline. And numbers are huge. For example, learning. The Department of Defense did a big study of soldiers in flow. Soldiers in flow will learn 240 to 500% faster than normal. It means from novice to expert can be done in 50% less time uh, with the help of flow. So usually important for peak performance, usually important uh, <clears throat> quality of life because flow also deeply underpins happiness, well-being, meaning, purpose, overall life satisfaction is one of the most well-established facts in positive psychology. If you want to score off the charts for overall well-being, meaning, purpose, all those things, the people who do are the people with the most flow in their lives. Um, And interesting thing for the topic that we're going to get to, which is peak performance aging, um, 
flow uh, and in the Godfather flow uh, psychology, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi did a lot of this work. Flow is one of the major drivers of adult development, of maturity. On the other side of flow states, learning increases. We're more complex, we're more adaptable, we're more empathetic, we're more wise. That's how we grow up. So it's through, there's other drivers, of course, but it's through this process of flow that we make those leaps um, in our life. <clears throat> so usually, usually important across the boards. And um, I just want to say that uh, there's a fairly precise psychological definition of flow, sort of core characteristics that we look for. This is how we know you're in a flow state or somebody else is. The work that I've spent most of my career on is the neurobiology of flow. So what uh, what's going on in the brain and the body during peak human performance? And we've gotten very like very good at this. In fact, I recently uh, a couple other neuroscientists we published a paper in Neuroscience and Biobehavior Reviews, great journal. Um, on the first two seconds of flow, what happens in the brain as we transition into a flow state. And in that paper, we not only outlined that, we compared flow specifically to traumatic stress and to psychedelic states. So comparative altered states of consciousness. And so not, not only do we understand what's going on in the brain during flow or getting a much better picture, we've got a decent sense of physiology and we can do sort of comparative uh, altered state analysis at this point. So the science is getting really firm. The field is very big. There are probably a couple thousand dedicated flow researchers in the world today spread between psychology and neuroscience and a whole bunch of other fields. Um, so uh, that's flow. I'll stop there and, and let you guys ask other questions. How do you know? How do you know if you're in a flow state? So this is the sixth. So this is uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. This was his first major contribution. Is he figured out that flow is definable, and it's got these six core characteristics. They're cycle. They're actually phenomenological characteristics, which is a big fancy word that says this is how the experience makes you feel inside. So uh, the first, is, flow follows focus, right? It only shows up when all our attention is the right here, right now. And so complete concentration of the task at hand is the first characteristic. The second characteristic is this merger of action and awareness, the vanishing of self, the diminishment of self, uh, time passing strangely. We don't experience peak performance on the inside. Instead, what we get is a sense of control. Oh, wow, I can do things I normally can't do, right? This could me as a writer in flow, it's 6 a.m. on a Tuesday and my sentences are popping and like they're doing things my sentences don't normally do at a 6 a.m. on a Tuesday. This could be, you know, a basketball player in the zone. The basket looks as big as a hula hoop and they can't miss, right? Um, and finally, we define the experience as uh, it's joyous, it's ecstatic, it's an end in itself. The word psychologists use is autotelic. And it basically means, and autotelic means an end in itself. It means that like, once an experience starts producing flow, it's so addictive, so pleasurable, so joyous, we'll go really far out of our way to get more of it. So this is how flow underpins productivity and motivation so well. So in your, yeah, in your previous book, um, it was, that's, that's kind of the precursor to why um, the addictive state of it, and we'll do so much to do it. And that's why so much of this is involved in extreme sports. And is that correct? I well, flow is a dick. I mean, you can get flow. Most common flow state on earth is reading or like mm. middle managers in conversation at, at, at work. Mm. Um, and so, yes, flow is associated with with action sports because at the upper levels, 
the people who are, you can't do your job. You can't do your job as a professional athlete, any really anywhere, or as a, as a professional soldier, a lot of these kind of careers without flow. It's, it's core to, you know, how they, how the job gets done. Um, and, uh, the blank, so she sent me how the Godfather flow and myself. Um, and we're probably the two people who have written the most about the subject. Um, we were both influenced by action sports. We studied action sport athletes. We studied artists. And so we wrote a lot about action sport athletes and artists and flow shows up everywhere. Right. Um, in fact, people spend about 5% of their work life in micro flow. It's when those six characteristics show up, but they're like dialed down to one or two often without noticing it. So like really common experience, you go to work, you sit down, you're going to write a quickie email to your colleague. Right. But something clicks and suddenly you're writing an essay and an hour goes by and you didn't even notice. And maybe your entire sense of self didn't completely vanish, but bodily awareness is gone. And when you pop back in, you're like, oh, wow, I got to pee. Right. And you run to the bathroom. And that happens to us all the time. That's micro flow. Macro flow, which is much more common in action sports, is the extreme other end. Time slows down. You can have out of body experience. Some of the brain's really peculiar phenomenon show up during macro flow. And we understand the neurobiology of why now, um, but that most people just think of macro flow. And they also don't know that uh, you can turn micro flow up into macro flow. So like this is a, it's a spectrum of experiences, right? You can be a little irked and suddenly you're homicidally murderous. You've turned up the volume. You can do the same thing with flow. Um, and so flow follows focus. So is there certain uh, practices? Is there certain strategies that we can yeah, use so, to kind of like incentivize it? Yeah. So um, flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. And since we're going to go into a conversation on peak performance aging, I'm going to just talk about the two of the more important triggers for that conversation. Um, I would have to talk about them anyways to explain sort of some of the research and what we're going to talk about. So the most famous flow trigger is the challenge skills balance. Flow follows focus. We pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. You want to stretch but not snap. Metaphorically, we often say it's about 5% difference. So when the challenge is about 5% harder than your skills, that's the sweet spot. It's what uh, psychologists call the flow channel. Physiologists talk about the same thing. They call it the Erks-Dobson curve. It's the same. We're looking at the same thing. Um, <clears throat> and what's interesting, like it's a stretch but don't snap. So like they say psychologically, it's sort of between boredom and anxiety. Boredom, no stimulation here. I'm not paying any attention. And anxiety is, whoa, way too much, Right. In between is the flow channel and um, for people who are shy, meek, timid a little bit, it's a little tricky because you're outside your comfort zone. So you got to get better at being, you know, good at being uncomfortable. You got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. For type A hard charging types, it's tricky because hard chargers like to take on huge challenges because it keeps them engaged and keeps their attention held. And what's interesting is the science of motivation tells us that those big high hard hard uh, high art goals, as they're called, are great for motivation. You can get an 11 to 25% boost in motivation with a properly set high art goal. It's just that what you want to do is chunk down that goal. So the task at hand is four to 5% greater than your skill set. So that's one. The second one is uh, creativity. So when we are creative, when we link ideas together in a new way, that's pattern recognition. And whenever we recognize a pattern, it's so fundamental to survival, the brain rewards us with a squirt of dopamine. This is a feel-good, focus-enhancing neurochemical that drives attention in the present moment. So this shows up, you know, this could be 
me editing writing, right? And I notice a pattern and, oh, if I change this word, you know, boom, this could be if you've ever done a crossword puzzle, you fill in an answer, that little rush of pleasure, that's dubbing. But for skiing, um, which is going to be a topic we're going to talk about more as we move into our country a little bit, when you look at a terrain feature, like a hump of snow and go, oh, I can use that, that weird angle to throw it like a grind into a 180. That's also pattern recognition. So the creative interpretation of terrain also counts as that or a quarterback the play breaks down but they see a pattern they put it together and suddenly you know it's a long bomb to whomever in the end zone again uh, those so there are 26 known flow triggers so there's a lot more they all do the same thing all drive attention in the present moment uh we just talked about two of the ones that that i think are most important um to be utilizing on a daily basis so i'll i'll, I'll pause there and, and let you guys steer uh, okay, cool. So I think that's a good segue into the book itself. Again, it's called Nar Country, and uh, a bit of a, a connective tissue to things that Ben and I talk about on the show a lot. And actually, Ben's uh, Ben owns runs a gym, and this is also a big part of that uh, that gym, which is this concept of kicking ass into our nineties. What do we need to do today, regardless of where we are? to set ourselves up so that we can continue to kick ass into our 90s. And I bring that up because you have this great uh, this great phrase in the book, which is very similar, which is kick ass until you kick the bucket. And so I thought there was enough connective tissue there to, 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 to begin to talk about the subject of this book. And you have, you have a, a bit in the book. I'm just going to read it. If you want to kick ass until you kick the bucket, you have to train for old age like a professional athlete. Uh, studies show that with proper training, we can retain 70% of our physical abilities until even very late in life. Better, since, or better, better still, since the brain figures out how to compensate for some of what is lost, we can perform as though we've retained an even greater percentage of those skills. And so I want to start- no, By there. the way, that 70% is, yep. is specifically strength. You In other categories, VO2, max and things like that you can actually hang on to a lot a lot longer um high big picture big picture traditional view of aging traditional is uh what i term the long slow rot theory right it's our (laughs) mental and our physical skills decline over time there is nothing you can do to stop the slide and what most people don't know is we know where that comes from it's 1904 freud is about to turn 50 and he's terrified of turning 50 And he makes a comedy, writes in one of his books that, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here until I get to the end, but he basically says, you know, don't even try psychotherapy with anybody over 50. Their brains are too calcified. People over 50 are no longer educable. Now, Freud says this, he's 49. He's terrified of turning 50, makes this comment. Then he goes on to write several of his most famous books in his 50s and his 60s, right? So it's not even true for Freud, but he never corrects it. And by like 1995, all we've done is just prove him right. We've got long lists of all the shit that goes away. But starting in 1995, and some of this is older longitudinal studies that started in the 70s that finally get finished in the 90s, um, or 80-year studies of adult development that start getting finished in the early thousands. And some of it is, is just other work that starts popping up based on based on questions people are asking at the time. But we start dro- poking holes in this research. And it's a couple here and there in the beginning, and pretty soon you can drive a bus through the old idea, the long slow route theory. And the new thinking is... Most, it probably is going to turn out to be all because it's just so many at this point. But let's just say most of the skills we used to think declined over time. We now know the user loses skills, right? 
both on the cognitive side and on the physical side. And if you never stop training these skills, you can hang on to them and even advance them far later than anybody thought possible. On top of that, um, boosting that, as we enter our 50s, there are some profound changes in how the brain processes information. And if we get it right, you gain access to whole new levels of intelligence, creativity, empathy, and wisdom in your 50s, 60s, 70s. And it literally starts peaks in our 80s um, in terms of how the brain is working. So it's not just that we can hang on to our skills. We cognitively, we have a bunch of stuff that is totally locked, locked off from us earlier that turns on. Um, and these are, you know, they're really, those are uh, intelligence, creativity, wisdom, and empathy are among the most crucial skills to thriving in the 21st century. We'll get back to the show in just a minute. But first, a quick word of thanks to our sponsor this week, Miracle Made. You know what a miracle feels like? It feels like getting a good night of sleep. You know this. We talk about the importance of sleep all the time here on the show. That's why we're excited to introduce you to Miracle Made Bed Sheets. Miracle Made Bed Sheets are made with all natural antibacterial silver that prevents 99.9% .9 of bacteria growth and keeps you at the perfect temperature all night long. Whatever you want in life, more patience, a heavier back squat, the respect and adulation of millions of strangers on the internet, I promise you, better sleep is the way to get it. With Miracle Made, you can tap into the power of self-cooling temperature regulation that's been shown to improve sleep quality by over 30%. Go to trymiracle.com excellence to get yours. If you do, you'll not only get 40% off by using the code excellence, they'll even throw in three free towels. They're so confident you'll love these sheets that they offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you've got nothing to lose but that groggy feeling in the morning that comes after a bad night of sleep. Head to trymiracle.com excellence and be sure to use the code excellence to save 40% off. Let's just get right into it. Talk to me a little bit about, you've mentioned this a little bit, skiing. That's what, uh, that's yeah. the, okay, the so, story of NAR country, but where- So let me, yeah, let me- Yeah, let me give, us a, give us the context of skiing. Little, let me give you a little backstory. Yeah. Because there's a there's a, the lead into this story. So the godfather of flow psychology is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And he died during COVID. Our last conversation took place a couple months before COVID starts. And he'd had a stroke, he was in his 80s. And um, I called him to check on him. And also because, so a bunch of his work had gotten translated uh, into English out of Italian and like interviews he had given in, in, in Italian. And in the, some of those interviews, he's like dropping names of like hardcore Yosemite Valley climbers from the sixties, names that you would only know if you were there. And I knew he was a lifelong outdoorsman and, and, a, and a mountaineer and a hiker. And I knew he had done some rock climbing and he'd done some studies on rock climbers, but I had no idea. He like, and so I talk, started talking to some of his students and they would tell these funny stories about he'd come to class on a Monday with like a bruise on his face from like rock climbing incidents and whatever. So I called him up. I was like, Mike, you, you just got to tell me, like, tell me about the role that action sports played in the development of flow psychology. You never talk about it. Like we get these stories about you in a concentration camp. We get these stories about the artists. I was like, but I'm like, and I, so I laid it all out. I was like, you got it. What, what's, what's going on? And there's this huge pause, two minutes of silence. And I think, and I offended him and I'm you know, mortified that I've offended me. I chicks at me. I, and there's suddenly he just, he sort of like, he, he speaks really slowly. And um, he was like, well, Stephen, you gotta be careful. And I, I'm like, 
I don't, what the hell is he talking about? Like, has he lost the plot? Is it like, was to the stroke in his, oh shit, right? And I was like, well, uh, like, what do, what, do you, what do you mean? What do I, I, he's like, well, you do something your entire life for flow and then you get to my age and forget about climbing rocks or mountains. Some days I can't get out of bed. You need a backup plan for flow. You gotta be careful. And what he was telling me was like one flow junkie to another. Don't just have, as you age, don't have a single pathway into your, you know, the best experience on earth. Have as many avenues in as possible. And so I take his advice to heart. And I, now I've been studying peak performance aging for almost 20 years. It's not called peak performance aging until like three or four years ago, right? It was healthy aging and successful aging. And there was regenerative medicine and longevity technology. And over here's flow science and adult development and like embodied cognition and, you know, geriatric psychiatry and 11 other fields, but it starts coalescing. And I've been working on in these fields and, and, and doing this for a really long time. And I see a bunch of information in all these studies that say these things are true older adults should be able to onboard take on incredibly difficult new challenging skills even late in life and so i took all these ideas i blended them into a learning protocol and i decided to see if i could use them to teach myself how to park ski in my 50s now for those unfamiliar park skiing is the discipline in skiing that involves doing tricks off jumps and on rails and boxes and wall rides it's incredibly acrobatic it's very dangerous and for about 11 different reasons it, it the I, general thinking is if you haven't learned it by 35 it's really really difficult by 40 45 it's downright you know impossible and once you get to 50 or 55 you're just fucking crazy right like you forget about it and um i said okay it, that's that's fine but um and we can talk about why this backup plan came in like why it was park skiing we can talk about where that comes from in a second but um to test it out, just we made a list of 20 tricks. It would get you from zero to intermediate. And intermediate was key to me because then like I would have a million more entrances into flow through like creativity and being able to interpret the mountain. Um, but intermediate is also when you stop doing stupid things and like the randomness sort of comes out of the learning process and you can get injured, but it's a lot less likely if you're being smart about it. So that was my goal. I had this trick list. I had a couple other things that would, that would quantify it. And I thought if it takes five years, it takes five years, right? Like whatever. Um, I'm having, this is my backup plan. And, um, and I, you, it's important to know I was a big mountain skier, right? And which gave me one way into flow, like rowdier and rowdier lines, more risk. Um, and uh, I knew that by creatively interpreting terrain features, by learning how to park ski, creativity would become a way into flow. So like I would have all these millions of more entrances into flow. If I did it, that's what I was aiming for. And it turns out I went from complete novice, didn't know any tricks to intermediate, checked off all 20, you know, three and a half months. It's the fastest I'd ever learned anything. For, I mean, like it's, this is an incredibly difficult thing in my fifties. And I, I went faster than I've ever learned anything. My ski partner, Ryan Wicks, who was a former sponsored park skier who got injured, left the sport, had a family, had a career, came back to it. He's a lot younger than I am. And he picked up where he left off, sort of like started over, but you know, he got farther in a single season than anybody he's ever thought. And at the end of this, we were like, well, what we've got here 
is maybe the most radical experiment anybody's ever run in peak performance aging and like a phenomenal pilot study, right? We got, we got this great data set of two people. So mm-hmm. the following year, we came back and using the same protocol, we can talk more about what we did in a second. Um, we took 17 older adults, ages 29 to 68, and uh, in four days on the mountain, taught them how to park ski and park snowboard. We then stripped out the action sports because not for everyone. And uh, we wanted to see if we could explode traditional mindsets around aging. We could talk about why that's super important in a moment and get people on a, what we call a NAR style quest. Mine was to learn to park ski, but it's like, whatever yours is, it's a cha- it's the challenge, the thing that I had unfinished business in skiing. For a lot of reasons, there was unfinished business there. So this challenge sort of fed into that. So like NAR style challenges, um, could you, and you know, on the, the class worked incredibly well. We put like 350 people through it. And like people did everything from like, you know, a, a woman in Japan uh, went from like no artistic talent to a solo show. Uh, somebody else taught themselves to kiteboard in their 70s. Somebody else is running triathlon. You know, it's whatever is right for you, but it's the it's a big sort of impossible challenge um, that, you know, really can alter the course of the second half of your life. That's what we were aiming for and tremendous success there. So the stories of the experiments are what's told in the book. Um, uh, and, uh, and the protocol is, is, you know, it's an adventure story. It's a fun book. Um, unlike some of my other books, which are much more science heavy, this is much more adventure and applied science. I wanted to, I wanted people to understand the one thing I've never been able really to communicate in my books is like, what does this shit look like when you apply it on a daily basis? Peak performance, peak performance aging, like what does that look like? Um, Cause that was the question I kept getting from, you know, the tens of thousands of people we get to train at the front end of that training. That's sort of something a lot of people want to know, right? What's it going to look like? How does it feel? And it's really hard to break that down, but now I have something that I can point to and be like, well, there you go. Um, and so that's the story in our country. And uh, we could talk about what I did, but, um, you know, it was really a test to see if the old dog could learn some no tricks and um, resounding yes was the result. Super cool. So that is, I mean, this is exactly in line with like our community and what we try to do. We're, we're trying to optimize peak physical and mental capabilities. And what I found interesting about your book is your, is um, two things many things, but let's poke on two, is you chose to start with the physical and um, you, um, the training you did in the mountains, dry land with your dog in the weight vest. Um, can you just give a little bit of insight as to if we're trying to learn a bunch of new tricks, which are skill-based and they're very specific, um, why start with this kind of uh, this, this physical capacity? So one, um, When I think this is a problem with uh, older older adults who are sort of coming back to physicality, um, they don't bother to take the time to like get assessed by a, a movement professional who can watch them walk and say, "Oh, you broke your ankle at 18, and your leg is doing this, and let's fix that." Right? They, you know, as you guys know. As time goes on, we favor our prime movers and we neglect our stabilizers. So when people come back to sports, right, their quads have been doing all the work and they tear a hip flexor because it hasn't done anything for 10 years. And so like there's a a proper way to sort of train up park skiing. um, Being tired is deadly. 
So I had to get my stamina higher than ever before. There's also for peak performance aging, one of the advantages of training with a weight vest. And, and so, okay, let me just also start here. Functional fitness. Uh, if, as I said earlier that there are physical skills that decline over time, but we can all, they're use it or lose it skills. There are a big five, right? And they're the five of functional fitness, strength, stamina, agility, balance, and flexibility. There's other things that you want to work, fast twitch, muscle response, hand-eye coordination, a couple others, but those are the big five. And the World Health Organization is very precise. Like you peak performance aging, you want 150 to 300 minutes of moderate to vigorous cardio a week, two strength training days, and three balance flexibility and agility days. I mean, like it's very, it's sort of very prescriptive. We know exactly sort of what you're looking for. So um, weight vest hikes, I say one of the things that's really important is dynamic motion over time and why dynamic motion gives you a way to train all five of those categories at once. And if you're not ready to start park skiing or something like that, weight vest hiking, if you stretch prior and after, trains all five of them right? And it improves bone density, which decreases over time and a lot. So the cutting edge of physiology right now is the link between bone health and brain health. And a lot of the things that we thought decline over time, it's actually bone density that's declining. And the bones are like the mineral nutrient factory for the body and the brain. All our calcium, which runs the brain, comes from our bones, right? And crosses the blood-brain barrier as the bones get broken down. But bone density declines over time. If you're not fighting back against, I mean, there's all kinds of physical consequences. So also I was doing something that was scary. Leg strength is not only the single most important correlate for preserving mental and physical function, mental and physical function, mm. right? And we can talk about some of that, by the way, is bone density because the biggest legs, bones in your body are in your legs, right? And if they're going away, you're not actively training your your quads and those, and those bones, you're impacting your brain. Um, some of it has to do with social support, really important for peak performance aging. You lose mobility, you lose your legs, you, you can't get that. There, I can go on, but it's the single greatest correlate for uh, health, and peak performance aging. But the other thing that's really important, and this is really the answer to your question, one of the things that most people don't know if they're not used to really training legs hard is as you're on, this happens across the boards when you're training your body, confidence improves, but confidence when you train up your legs improves almost more than anything else. And it's because you're stabler on the earth, right? Mm. And you're more, you're more agile. Like the very things that get you away from danger and towards your goals run through your legs. So there's a direct relationship between leg strength and confidence. And I was going into a very scary, challenging activity. I wanted as much confidence as possible. Um, so th- for all those reasons, I, you know, I started on the physical side. We'll get right back to the show in just a minute. But first, a quick word of thanks to our sponsor this week, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy platform, connecting you virtually with a licensed therapist who can help you get out of your own way so you can build a life of greater health and more fulfillment. Why might you consider therapy? Here are just a few reasons. Because it can help you identify and change unhealthy thought patterns and behaviors. Because it can help you develop healthy coping skills for managing stress. Because it can help you boost confidence and self-esteem. Because it can basically turn you into an emotional superhero. BetterHelp makes the process of starting easy, convenient, and simple. The therapy itself is none of those things, but alas, the good things in life really are. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash excellence today and get 10% off your first month. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. 
com slash excellence. So I just want to pull on that again, like leg strength, the single greatest correlate to physical and mental. Yeah. And it's, but and they, they, like study after study after study and nobody, what's really funny is if you read the studies um, and they're all, they're, they're all indexed in, in, in my book footnotes. Um, nobody really can believe it in the beginning. They're like, what the hell? Like, how is it like, we get like physical function and things like that, but it was the cognitive thing. So it wasn't until we started realizing that there was a relationship between bone health and bone density and cognitive function that even that started to make some, some more sense to people. But there's still like, I think there's two or three pieces missing from that puzzle that hasn't been solved. And I think most researchers would tell you that like there's something, there's another connection there that we haven't quite lit upon. But yeah, it's, it's really hugely important. That's fascinating. Like that, that's fascinating. And the other thing also that you should know, and you, you probably know this is for functional fitness, for, for like the health of the fascia, for everything else. Um, a lot of it starts in your feet. Right. And so what people forget they're you know, half the nerve endings in the body and your hands, feet and face. Right. And if you want to perform at your best, you need, connections so one of the things that we, we, I, we i'm a big believer in is training barefoot not whether for heavy lifts and whatever but like doing balance exercise and bosu balls and exercise that sort of stuff barefoot it's because you have to have the neurons in the feet have to be able to talk to the cerebellum and the rest of the brain and back and forth at lightning speed and if you've been walking around in shoes all the time those nerves are dead and so um the also, you know, when you, you want to, you want to start, you, you want that super stable foundation. Um, and, uh, that's something I keep, I've doubled down more and more on is, is, is that kind of work also? Cause I've seen, um, le- like wild improvements in, in, like, I'll give you a, a, but I'll give you, so I've been working a lot with Edith House who runs Revolution in Motion. She does a lot of this kind of work and, um, she works with a lot of top athletes and she's had me like all summer doing shit like, you know, standing on a BOSU ball on the round side of BOSU ball on one foot with like a, a, you know, holding a, you know, weight over my head and doing quarter squats, right? And then maybe half squats and different foot positions and whatever. And a lot of stuff like that, right? This season, it's not so much that I'm, yeah, am I stronger? Is my balance a little better? It is. But what's actually the biggest change is in proprioception and vision, because I'm, I have more balance and more awareness of like, and there's more better nerve connection. When I look at lines, I'm seeing lines like on the ski mountain that before I would look at them and I'd be like, I can't fucking ski that. I don't even know who skis that. What is, like, what is that? There's no line there. You're out of your mind. And now I'm like, oh, I see that. I know how to ski that. Or I'll give you another example from earlier this season. I watched a guy ski a, a crazy line and halfway through the line, he exploded. But my brain went, oh, it exploded because he wasn't leaning back two inches at that spot. And if you lean back at two inches at that spot, you'll be fine. And I like before I even thought about it, I pushed off the cornice and skied the line. It was from the top of Kirkwood. It was a rowdy line off the cornice at the top. And I like never before had my brain been able to like, and as soon as I got to that spot, my the voice in my head was like, lean back. And I was like, okay. And just wheeling out of there it was totally fine, totally safe. Um so like that's the the stuff that's cool when you go in through the physical stuff is not so much yes the performance goes up and all that stuff but it's it changes your brain and your vision in ways that you cannot anticipate and to me that's the most fun. So I uh, I want to yeah this is a, it's a perfect segue into this next um, 
one of the big takeaways, and you just kind of touched on a little bit, is you, before you even knew it, you were, you jumped in that line. You're skiing this cornice at Kirkwood. In your book, I couldn't like, I, I, it just was a through line over and over again. Is the way that you were skeptical of the voice in your head. You had this like inherent distrust of your voice would say like, no, don't do that. And you'd be like, screw you. You almost have this like antagonistic yeah. little comfort. It's almost confrontational with your own mind. And just the ability to separate like, I am not my mind. There are thoughts and those thoughts are there as a, basically something dropped in a suggestion box. It's just a data point. It's not who I am or what I have to do. And I, that constant through line, because maybe to give a little more insight into the, the, the book is formatted as essentially a diary where it's just a, 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 a log of your training and your skiing through this flow state. So you get to see kind of like, as you said, which is interesting, it's, it's, it's a narrative of how you build towards the, these skill sets through flow states. Can you just pull a little bit, like a little bit of um, commentary on that, that, that distrust of the mind and how yeah, it's so, always there so for you? You have to get really good at interoception to do this work, right? Understanding interoception is the ability to detect internal signals to the body. Um, for example, the standard interoception test is: Can you count your heartbeats? Okay. And uh, what's amazing is people who have better interoception skills. Um, first of all, they have better pattern recognition. So they did a test: London stock traders who can better count their heartbeats perform better in markets. Um, things like that, uh, because it's, it's very tied into pattern recognition, but it's also people who have poor interoception, it's tied to depression, it's tied to all kinds of stuff, um, suicide ideation, things like that. Uh, but um, you have to get good at that, but there's a difference between those internal signals and the voice in your head. And oftentimes the voice in your head is being driven by, by fear. Right. And um, this is super true in peak performance aging because I call it getting geezer when somebody gets there like I'm too old for this shit and they get that <laughs> that, that all over you. You've gotten geezered. Um, the voice that's telling you you're too old for this shit. What peak performance uh, aging tells us is like the voice is lying. Like literally the voice is lying. In fact, the very things you need to be doing over time are often things that the voice in your head is saying, you're too old for this shit. Um, and that's a fear response, right? You're using age to justify fear, right? And oftentimes that voice uh, is, 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 is lying. It's, it's wrong. And, you know, you in peak performance in, in, in general, in human performance, your emotions often don't mean what you think they mean. In fact, oftentimes they mean the exact opposite. I'll give you a simple example. So flow is not a binary. It's not a light switch. You're in the zone or out of the zone. It's a four-stage process. And the front end of a flow state is a struggle phase. Flow may be the best feeling on earth. Struggle is miserable, right? Flow is what happens when we've automatized a bunch of skills. We take four or five things. We learn them. We join them together. And we do them all at once perfectly without conscious interference. We still got to learn that shit consciously. And working memory taps out after four concepts. So if you're trying to learn more than was a skill that requires more than four ideas, you are going to be frustrated. And it turns out um, that frustration is a sign you're moving in the right direction 
not the wrong direction. You need that frustration to get into flow. In fact, a lot of work uh, in psychology and in peak performance is that the more frustrated you get trying to solve a problem, the better chance you have of actually solving that problem in the end. Um, and in flow work, it's a sign that you're moving in the right direction, right? Mm -hmm. So like, think about what this means from an education, a kid's perspective, like kids get mad, they get frustrated and Oh, you know, stop back off, you know, like, no, no, you're, you're exactly where you need to be. This is it. like, yeah, does it feel bad? It feels bad. Yes, it does. It feels bad for all of it, but it's actually a sign you're moving in the right direction. There's a lot of stuff like that in peak performance and the voice in your head is just like, it, it's going to hear the frustration. Right. Um, and, uh, so I spend a lot, a lot of the time arguing, uh, with the voice in my head throughout the book. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah. What's the, uh, can we just keep going? What are the stages of flow? The first one. So for, actually, it's so funny. I'm smiling when you say that because literally last night I'm in the driveway with my 10 year old son. We're shooting hoops and he's just doing what 10 year olds do. is like pushing the ball. I'm like, let it flow off your fingertips. Try and get a backspin on it. And he's getting all frustrated. And I'm like, dude, if you get frustrated, I'm out of here. And like, that's me like not recognizing that this is actually a part of it. I should have I should essentially allow him to be frustrated. You, I mean, well, you should allow him to be frustrated and let him know that even though it feels bad, he's going in the exact right direction. Yeah. The yeah. problem is we are told that when it feels bad, it's we're doing something wrong. wrong. We seem to believe that's wrong. And let me give you the greatest proof. I always say this to people, like if you ask people, and I've done this for decades, about those things that happened in their life that are the most meaningful, that like have changed them the most and whatever. You know what you never hear? Oh, there was this day I was walking down the street, I slipped and I found a lottery. You hear, oh, I worked as a cab driver for seven years to put myself through night school and law school and then I passed the bar, right? Like you hear the a long, hard challenges that try, those are the things that define our lives. Those are the things that make our lives most meaningful. That's what adds up into meaning and overall well-being and life satisfaction. Those are the very things we want. And yet in the moment, those are the emotions that make us like want to stop. Right. And those are, th those emotions should not, they shouldn't make us want to stop. You have to like teach yourself that just because it feels bad doesn't, doesn't mean you're, you're, you're not making progress. You're not going that direction. Um, well, so what follows struggle? Struggles phase. struggle. There's a release phase. So in struggle, we're trying to load the brain with information and release. You just want to take your mind off the problem. Uh, long walks in nature, low grade physical activity works really well here. So like this is not go to the gym and exercise till you can't move anymore. This is go for a, a, a walk, gardening, build a model airplane, draw something that sort of engages you physically, but just allows you to take your mind off the problem. Um, third stage is flow. That, and there, by the way, there are different triggers you can apply in different stages that work. The third stage is flow. And then on the back end of flow, flow is an energetically expensive state to produce. And there's a big recovery phase. So being in flow, this is, a, this is where a lot of people go wrong is they don't, like we know to recover from a hard workout of the right. gym, right? But flow feels delicious. And we don't realize that we're burning a ton of energy um, and you have to recover on the back end of flow. And more importantly, you have to sleep, right? Because flow amplifies learning. But if you're not getting deep delta wave sleep, seven to eight hours, 
that learning isn't going from short-term holding to long-term memory, right? And then you're going to get really stuck in the struggle phase. The relationship between frustration and learning and frustration and growth is, is, do we forget that as we get older? And is that part of why as we get older, we, we sink into the mindset of, well, I can't do that because now I'm older. No, right, is there so, a relationship there? Yeah. Let me, let me, I, I wanted to say this actually when Ben and I were talking. So let me pull back and let me give you peak performance aging in a sentence. Yeah. Okay. And then we're going to talk about what each of the terms mean in the sentence. And then we're going to answer your question in the middle of that. So if you want to summarize, like if you want to rock to you drop, um, you want to engage in challenging, creative, and social activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. So let me say it again. Oh, you want so to rock to you drop. You want to, you want to regularly engage in challenging social and creative activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. Now let's talk about what all those terms mean and why this is peak performance aging in a sentence. But let me first point out the thing that like isn't in that sentence. There are no nutraceuticals. There's no supplements. There's no diet. None of that shit, right? Like all the tools that most people reach for are not in that sentence. So challenging creative and social activities, challenging activities because you need the challenge skills sweet spot to drive us into flow and flow is how we get more complex, more adaptable, how we learning all that stuff, right? And also keeps the brain active and helps us. So we get more risk averse over time. It's very it's dangerous that neurochemistry of Rick's aversion blocks all the good stuff that we want. So you want to constantly fighting against it. Challenging activities help with that. Creative. So I talked earlier about the so-called superpowers of aging, more intelligence, more creativity, more empathy, more wisdom. Gene Cohn, godfather of, of, of peak performance aging, one of them, um, discovered that if you really want access to those, there's a moderator, creativity. You have to actually be engaged in creative activities to train the brain, to unlock the new thinking styles that come online in our 50s and train them up. And it's those new styles that produce the new, uh, all the creativity, empathy, and wisdom. So creativity, you have to be engaged in that to get what you want. It's also a flow trigger, right? So now you've got two flow triggers in the first social Social activity is so important to peak, so robust social networks, social ties, crucial to peak performance aging for a bunch of reasons. One, keeping the brain active matters and most people get the most brain activity and you don't see it coming, right? Like your friends say wacky shit and you're like, oh, I got to think about that. And so like all that really, really, really matters in like a robust social life translates to about like seven and a half years of, of health and longevity. It's a big deal, right? So challenging creative and social activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play. Dynamic is the term we talked about earlier. It means all five categories of functional fitness. Deliberate play is what I want to emphasize here because we've been talking all about struggle and grit and all that other stuff. And this is really not the way to go about it. So everybody's familiar, or most people are now familiar with deliberate practice. Anders Ericsson's famous idea, 10,000 hours. Deliberate practice is do the same thing again with incremental advancement. Deliberate play is um, repetition without repetition. It's repetition with improvisation. Do what you just did, but improv a little bit on top of it. Why does it matter? Well, one, even Anders pointed this out before he passed, that uh, deliberate practice is great. But in the end, he started to realize it was only, it was only for very specific skill sets. Mathematics, 
learning how to play the violin. But like for most of us, it's not really because there's a bunch of arguments that have been made against Andrew's stuff and range. David Epstein makes a great one. I make another one in Art of Impossible. Andrews himself had a, had a bunch. Uh, the deliberate play, on the other hand, which is like, I'm going to do the same thing I just did, but I'm going to improv a little bit on top of it. It amplifies learning so much more. One, there's no shame. There's no self-consciousness. You're not right with deliberate practice. There's only one right answer. You do the same thing you did before, just a little bit better. And there's only one possible right answer. With deliberate play, there's only one wrong answer. You do the same thing you did before. Everything else is a right answer. And we know those right answers produce dopamine. That's more motivation. And whenever we play, that stimulates deep in the brainstem all of like the sources of endorphins. So you get really potent feel-good neurochemistry that really amplifies learning. And deliberate play outperforms deliberate practice for learning in almost every circumstance. Um, so dynamic deliberate play in novel outdoor environments. So novelty is a flow trigger, another flow trigger, right? When things are novel, we pay a lot of attention, drives dopamine, drives focus. Um, So that's super important. Also novelty forces you to stay open to experience and openness to experience. This is crazy. So they wanted to know of the big five personality characteristics, which ones correlate to peak performance, aging, health, longevity, mortality. And while all of them sort of impact all those things, Openness to experience is the only one that has a direct correlation with mortality. And there's this thing that happens as we age, um, as openness to experience shrinks, when it gets to a certain point, essentially you're going to be dead within a year. There's a direct correlation between openness to experience and mortality. And it's like a year, which is crazy. So novelty really matters and novel outdoor environments. Why does that matter? So you want to preserve cognitive function, right? Um, the best way to do it is lifelong learning, expertise, and wisdom are diverse networks in the brain. They're redundant. They protect the brain from cognitive decline because they're not localized. So even if you have damage in one area, they're backed up all over the place. Um, and you, how do you get, like, what does it give you? It gives you neurogenesis, the birth of new neurons and birth of new neural networks. All that's fine. But you got to ask a simple question, which is where did most of those new neurons show up in the brain? And the answer is in the hippocampus. The hippocampus will birth 700 neurons a day until basically we die. Hippocampus does two things. It does long-term memory and it does location. It's place cells and grid cells. We were hunter-gatherers. We have to, for survival means remembering when we have emotionally charged experiences outdoors, where is that watering hole? We've been thirsty for weeks. Where did we get attacked by that tiger, right? We don't want to go back there. Where was that ripe fruit tree after the long winter? Like this is survival. So the brain is specifically built to remember emotionally charged experiences in outdoor environments. When that happens... Um, we're using the system the way it was designed to be used. And I always say that's peak performance. Peak performance is just getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. Peak performance aging is getting our biology to work for us rather than against us when facing the challenges and opportunities of the second half of our life. So that's the whole sentence defined. So while the struggle stuff, all this is important and grit matters, and, and we can talk a lot about that. The best way to go forward, the best way to learn these kinds of activities is, 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 an, is through play much more than practice. We'll get right back to the show in a minute. But first, quick word of thanks to our sponsor this week, Blinkist. 
The Blinkist app is your secret shortcut to the best, most impactful ideas inside over 5,500 nonfiction books. In just 15 minutes, either reading or listening, you can get a high-level glimpse of the major takeaways of a book, either to see if the full book is worth reading or to review and remind yourself of those ideas after you've read it. That is actually what I did when preparing for this interview with the great Stephen Kotler. Instead of going through my copy of The Art of Impossible for highlights and notes, I pulled the book up on my Blinkist app and was able to refresh my memory in just a few minutes. I was also able to take a look inside a few of his other books, including Stealing Fire and The Rise of Superman, both of which got me ready and excited for the conversation you are listening to right now. Go to Blinkist.com excellence to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. And now for a limited time, you can even use Blinkist Connect to share your premium account, basically getting you two premium subscriptions for the price of one. Again, that's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash excellence to get 25% off in a seven-day free trial. That was fantastic. Um, and I want to see if we can't bridge that into what you had mentioned earlier, which is the, the the training of individuals and maybe the protocols that you used to take people in a very in a relatively short period of time from you 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 Perfect. fill in the blank before yeah, yeah. no skill right. to skip. And that and that's great because we already covered uh different flow triggers. So our goal was not to teach people tricks. Our goal was to use teach people to move in new ways so they could creatively interpret terrain features, which would drop them into flow and the flow would take care of the learning. Okay, so how do we do that? We did two two main things. The first thing we did is park skiing, park snowboarding. There's basically eight foundational skills. A, uh, a grind, a crouch, a jump, a slash, a 180, a 360, a shifty and skiing backwards or riding backwards, switch skiing. Those are the eight foundational skills. And um, what we did was we took two skills a day and we trained people in those skills. And the goal was start with a movement you can do 100% of the time with no conscious interference and zero fear. And we knew if you are at least an advanced beginner and everybody qualify had to be an intermediate or better. We knew everybody knew how to do a hockey stop. Hockey stop is when you throw your skis or your snowboard sideways and you come to a stop. And anybody who makes it from beginner to advanced beginner learns to hockey stop, which means by the time you're an intermediate, you can do it with zero conscious interference, no fear, 100% of the time. It's how you stop at the bottom of every run. Well, if I elevate a hockey stop by like 10 degrees and you do it on a, on a little snow wall, that's a grind. So I knew... Everybody had a basic inch. They had a place to start. Um, the idea, so the idea was go one inch at a time on, with these, these motor skills. And how we learned was also very important. So we played games of follow the leader. We didn't, there was no, almost no verbal instruction whatsoever. And the, we put people in an order on the line based on how fast they wanted to move down the mountain. And you could change places like you wanted to go fast, go to the front of the line. You want to go slow, go to the back of the line, wherever you're at, um, doesn't matter. And do what the person in front of you did. And if you don't have that skill, dial it back and just do something within your skill set. And here's the cool thing that most people don't know. This is out of embodied cognition. When we watch somebody else do a move. So if I'm following a skier down the hill and he throws a 360, my brain, my mirror neurons run that motor program. 
As soon as I see it, my brain runs the motor program. This is why interior reception matters. You get a go signal. If you have the move, you'll get a little squirt of dopamine. You'll feel good. If you can't, don't have the move, you'll get a little squirt of norepinephrine. You don't have the move. Most people hear that norepinephrine like, oh, fear, I can't do this. And they back off entirely. We just said, no, 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 just dial it down. So it's like within your inch and do that. We knew they were seeing the tricks, right? Once these creative interpretations drop them into flow, everything gets amplified, right? The skills go way above baseline. And so learning goes way up. And that's essentially what we did. And a lot of what we did was less about what we were doing on the hill and more about what we weren't doing on the hill. We weren't talking. So flow, the prefrontal cortex gets really quiet. When you talk about yourself, when you get emotionally involved, when your ego's involved, that reactivates it. So on the chairlift, the rule was, no talking about yourself, no asking people personal questions about themselves, no talking about work or the world. Or You can make people laugh or you talk about the skiing or snowboarding and or you shut up. That's what like, so nothing else was allowed during like the eight hour performance learning window. And we did a couple other things like that, but that was basically the protocol. That was basically what we did. And the funniest thing about it, first of all, don't take my word for it. Go to narcountry.com, which is the website for the book. Click on the peak performance aging experiment. Watch the video. We had a National Geographic camera person follow us around the whole time so you can see everybody make all the progress. You can see what this looks like. Um, you can also read the white paper that's a little more technical scientifically um, about, about what we did. But um, what we discovered, not surprisingly, was that we actually had to help hold people back more than we had to let them advance. The other thing that we figured out, and this was key, is that, so I talked earlier about the challenge skills balance and how for about most of us, about 5% difference. In, in older adults, because of allostatic load, which is the impact of trauma over time, both physiologically and psychologically, we, did, we realized that that challenge skills sweet spot could shrink and it could be as low as like 1%. So, um, that was the whole like go one inch at a time, go really slow and hold yourself back more. Because what happens is people start making a lot of progress. And then first of all, self-expectation shows shows up, which is a nightmare. But second of all, they start moving too fast. And what the challenge skills sweet spot tells you is you can only advance your skills this little bit at a time too, right? So it's got to be this and, and you just it's slow and steady, slow and steady, slow and steady. And it's a sort of a different real way of like grading performance, a playful approach. It's a bunch of things, um, but it worked incredibly, incredibly well. And obviously you don't like, it doesn't just apply to skiing or snowboarding. We, we had great luck with it, but like, you know, the inner game of tennis is the same ideas, right? Or the only thing that's different between like when that book was written and where we are today is we now understand the neurobiology. The inner game of tennis was a guess and most of it's dead accurate, but it was mm. guess. We knew none of the science. Now we're like, oh, this is the science. This is what works. This is what works a little bit better. This was a kind of a silly idea that isn't quite right. And this is a fantastic idea. So, um, but we've gotten very good with that stuff. And that's where, where my, the, our learning protocol came from. And it worked incredibly well. And it kept everybody safe. Nobody got injured. Um, amazing. Last, last question is folks who are out there for listening, who, who are listening, where do you suggest, like, where do we begin? Right. Let's let, like, literally like it, it, you just said it, it, but it's yeah, not it. skiing. So, it's not. Yeah. 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 So I, how do we I will, put some I mean, of this into practice? I, well, the, the, you have to begin with mindset. Every, this is really clear in the literature. You have to all, so the mindset of old, which is that I'm too old for this shit, that voice 
Uh, it's tied to a lot of stuff um, that can show up as early as 30. Mm. And right. So like that mindset of old start can show up as 30 and really develops as we go on. And it's deadly. It actually kills us. Um, there's, there's more research on this than almost anything else. We know a positive mindset towards aging. I am excited about the second half of my life. The possibilities I think my best days are ahead of me. It produces an extra seven and a half years of health and longevity. And without it, you can't, you can't go anywhere. So, um, one, you want to start with mindset and two, you want to start with the, uh, the truth, which is that like, if you've got this mindset of old, which most of us have one way or another, um, affirmations aren't going to really get it done. You want to find a quest that's sort of like it. I, I tell people this. I was like, I had, you know, I had a really good mindset towards the second half of my life. Cause like I wrote the book, I've been doing this research for 20 years, but there was still shit where I was hung up. You know what I mean? And it, in the face of like nose butter 360s and 180s and all the other park tricks I learned, like it didn't matter what I used to believe. It was gone. It was exploded. So what I tell people is like, you want to start with mindset, but you also want to start with like a NAR style quest that will help you explode your mindset. And everybody's going to be different, right? And, you know, you, you want it. It should be authentic. It should be like really tied to who you are and what you want to accomplish in this world. Um, but that to me is, is, is sort of where you start. And with the physical stuff, I think, um, unless you've been regularly active your whole life, in which case, like you might just want to start training up for the, and in sports specific training really, I think matters to protecting from injury also, but, um, start with train training. Don't dive in. You want to go slow to go fast. And if like you haven't been training regularly, um, Start with an assessment by a, a, like a movement professional, somebody who can watch you walk and figure out like, what do we have to fix to get you training so we, you, you don't get hurt along the way kind of thing. Those are the places I would start. And then tr- truly last question, the, this idea of the NAR country and getting there and this, this goal, the, this, um, this pursuit do you recommend it always be a physical pursuit? In other words, like silly example, but like if I'm 48, 50, 52, and I'm like, I, I want to write a book. Is that, does, does that line up with the no, work that's, that you're, that's you're doing? That's awesome. That's yep. awesome. But it doesn't change the fact that like, you don't get this. If you don't train up, if you don't start training against physical fragility around in your fifties, you're going to go backwards. So you're going to get all these intellectual superpowers, but you're not going to be able to use them because your body is rotting away. So yes, writing a book is phenomenal, but it doesn't excuse you from, you still have to get involved in the five categories of functional fitness to hold on to that stuff. So at the Flow Research Collective, we train a ton of people all over the world, all walks of life. The one commonality, they're all busy. Everybody we train is busy these days. And so I'm always looking for what I call multi-tool solutions, a single tool that solves many problems at once. Why do I like action sports for peak performance aging activities? Because like it's a single tool that trains like 11 of the things that I got to train for peak performance aging in a single session. Right. I go skiing and ski hard for a day, five hours, and I've ticked off everything functional fitness wise that I'm supposed to get in a week. 
I got most of it in a day. And now I can go to the gym a couple other times and pick like, that's how I like to think about it. Because it, there's a lot to do and we're all busy, but peak performance aging, it's super possible. But if you're just looking at like all these things to do and you're not thinking about multi-tools and how do I stack protocols, you, it's too much to do. I mean, unless you're independently wealthy and don't have anything else going on, but like, you know, when I, I'm like the thing that was cool to me about this, and I'm rarely the guy who says if it works for me, it'll work for other people. Cause I don't believe that. I don't think that's actually true. But in this particular case, when I went into this, I always tell people I'm a bad athlete. I'm not a naturally gifted athlete. I like, I've spent my t- a lot of time around pros. I know what that looks like. I'm not mm-hmm. it. And I come from a family of, of some gifted athletes and I'm like, they had it and I didn't and like know that I'm, I have bro- I've broken a lot of bones. Right. So I broke very broken body and I have a crazy busy schedule. I run a big company. I write books. I have blah, blah, blah. And so I didn't have time. It's not like I couldn't find, you know, I had to like teach myself how to park ski. I did it in the middle of COVID. Like when everybody, I was doing the same things everybody else was doing, like trying to keep my company afloat and, you know, all that stuff. So I did all this stuff under very challenging circumstances. And I liked that for this experiment because I figured, fuck, you know, this particular thing, like most people are this busy. So they're not going to have a lot of time for training and they're going to have, you know, if you're in your fifties, you're going to have some stuff wrong with your body already. Um, and yeah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I, you know, I don't think being busy is an excuse for not going after this stuff. Um, but I don't want to ignore it either. I think it's a reality for most of us. So I think you want to that, that proceed with like multi-tool solutions. Thank you so much to Steven for his time. Thank you to you for yours. If you want to learn more about what Steven is up to, check out NAR Country, which is out now. If this episode resonated with you, please do consider sharing it. It helps new folks find the show and always makes Ben and I happy. If you are not yet subscribed to the show, wherever you're listening or watching, please do that as well. So you do not miss a future episode. Ben and I will be back next week for another episode. So until then, keep chasing.